travelers, and welcome to the way of the showman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am Captain Frodo, and I will be your host and your guide along the way. And today we're starting an exciting new uh, program, a new uh, project here on the way, and uh, that is that I have uh, over the last year, as I've mentioned a bit, I have written a very long document. And that document is about play and showmanship. Uh, over the next uh, bunch of episodes, I will uh, lay out like a huge extended metaphor um, my thoughts on play and showmanship and how showmanship is a kind of uh, offshoot of play or like that if you want to see where showmanship comes from we can learn a lot by looking at play and um, as we will see I have a lot to say about this and and it's uh, something that has fascinated me for uh, more than a decade and after talking to Jay Gilligan in his episodes about the um, another sunset where we did three whole episodes just on the development of that show these ideas of how interconnected play and showmanship is is something that I have been truly fascinated with and that the more I look the deeper the links go and um, so the project that sort of has, has changed there now the, the last uh, uh, bunch of episodes last 20 episodes or whatever the last year basically has been me having conversations with other people and in part that has been because I've been busy writing on on this one long project so up until now each season and although I understand that it is a little bit difficult to know what seasons are it's not uh, in uh, immediately obvious when you if you're using iTunes which I know a lot of people are using like the the iTunes podcast uh, app app uh, whatever from uh, Apple which is still one of the biggest uh, ones that it seems like people are using it doesn't it's not clear to see there whether this is season 1 or season 2 or whatever so this next project that I'm doing I'm going to mark them like from episode um, 22 onwards I was marking the episodes it's like I write the name of the episode or whatever so this time it will say showmanship and play and then it'll say the name of it and then at the end of that thing I'll make a little tag like maybe I'll write showmanship and play episode one or whatever and episode two and episode three so that you sort of know that these are related and then maybe in between we will do some uh, some interviews because I got some great conversations uh, uh, planned so they will come in between and uh, today will be an introductory episode you know uh, I'm gonna have a detailed introduction here ready for you but as a, as a sort of whole what we're going to do here the project is that we're going to try to look at play in a, one important aspect of it is going to look at play as the origin of showmanship but as we look at the origin of showmanship and we wonder about whether showmanship is a valuable thing to do what we discover when we look at what the impulse of play has offered humanity and what uh, features of human culture has emerged from from this function of play this mode of being in the world we will find uh, that uh, all the great great things of human culture can find have tendrils that goes back into the what human play is 
to be able to understand what shom, what the important features of showmanship is um, uh, we need to sort of look at what showmanship is so that we can recognize what it is when we go back to the beginning and I'm going to talk about that a lot here today but then next episode we will look at what showmanship is before we really start delving into what play is and as we look at these things we will try to keep play and showmanship in our heads at the same time and as it grows uh, this understanding uh, we will find whole new dimensions that we can um, add to our performance or if there, we have an act that doesn't work by looking at it through this uh, lens of showmanship as a form of play as our ex minds get and our notion of what play is is expanded and we get a deeper understanding of it we can then find deficits or potential new areas that can be opened up within what we do and as we will learn play is a whole lot more serious than what it appears to be on the surface and just there we already see that that is how I think of performance I think of showmanship and I think of entertainment as something a whole lot deeper than what most people do um, and so with that <laughs> with that said it's like when you look at somebody doing a juggling show like when I saw Jay get to do some of his stuff here now when I saw him in Sweden not long ago or when I see Matt King do a magic show I see something a whole lot deeper going on so although some might say it's just entertainment I go entertainment is a whole lot more serious than what it appears to be on the surface so uh, that is the topic of this uh, upcoming uh, season I will continue to call it a kind of season so that'll be the theme that runs through it so maybe that will also then flavor some of the conversations or uh, interviews that uh, I will, we will have along the way but uh, with now, without further ado, I would like to uh, delve into the actual meat and potatoes of today's introduction. We are going to start this introduction with a poem by William Wordsworth. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began, so is it now I am a man, so be it when I shall grow old, or let me die. The child is the father of the man. And I wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. The child is the father of the man. I really like that line. I really think that is... Uh, Deep my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is the father of the man. Very interesting. And as we shall see, as I will build my argument and point out all these different things that I've picked up from books along the way, this thing, the child is the father of the man, will sort of resonate through it all. In 1929, the Belgian surrealist painter René Magritte painted a realistic, shiny-looking pipe on a canvas. 
and after finishing it, he dipped his brush in his black paint and wrote, this is not a pipe. He wrote it underneath it, or he actually wrote it in French, ceci ne pas un pipe. And he called the painting the treachery of images. So what does he mean by that title? What is the particular treachery of images? We're going to explore that here in this uh, introduction. And, and this painting, The Treachery of Images, and its concepts is, is one of Magritte's most famous. And it's an early example of his fascination and lifelong exploration of the relationship between words, images, and reality. How are words related to images and how are words and images related to reality? And what he points out is that the painting of his pipe is very different from an actual pipe. He points out that you can't stuff tobacco into the painting of the pipe and enjoy lighting it up and smoking it whilst sitting by an unlit fireplace as a train emerges from it. That, it's another painting that he did. And the painting is, um, uh, of the pipe is, after all, is just a two-dimensional representation of a real-world pipe. The real pipe is more than the painted pipe. There's more going on with a real pipe than there is with a painted pipe. And for one, it is a three-dimensional object with real-world users like smoking, <laughs> you know. Um, and the many further uses of a real pipe, you know, that you could imagine, they're potentially vast. And it might even be a fun project, you know, for someone to... If you want to practice your creative thinking, then you can try to find out 20 or, or you know, find 10 different uses for a pipe. And I wonder, though, if one of the guys in that, if that creativity exercise, say it actually happened in real life, that if that person, if he was an ardent and long-time pipe-smoking champion, uh, then he might possibly have a harder time seeing the pipe's potential as, say, a snorkel or a soap bubble blower or an elephant mask or other possible uses, that he would have a harder time seeing those uses than a child who'd never seen someone smoking a pipe, which probably could happen today, you know. There's not, pipe smoking isn't so common. And maybe it would be more difficult for the pipe smoker than for the child, but we'll get back to this. And this whole, you know, pipe and painting of a pipe being different might seem like a trivial thing to point out. Is this not a rather sort of benign treachery from the images that, oh, God, remember that the painting isn't the same as the pipe. But as it turns out, Magritte's reminder is worthwhile keeping in mind because it is amazing how often we forget this in many other aspects of life beyond the realm of pipes. And the particular treachery of images is that we have a persistent tendency to substitute images or structures or theories for reality itself. We keep confusing reality as it is with our conceptions of reality. And just a couple of years after Magritte painted his pipe, uh, in 1939, Alfred Kozybski, uh, he wrote in a paper... He wrote, the map is not the territory, and pointing to the fact that people often confuse models of reality with reality itself. 
you know, you look at the map of uh, Norway or you look at a map of Australia and you go, yep, there it is. I now have the measure of Norway. I know what it is. I've just looked at it here and it's easy. But of course, there is practically no correlation between the piece of paper with a picture of uh, Norway as it curls up hanging onto Sweden and curls up over the top of Russia. Uh, there's very little. But we, we, keep, we have a tendency to forget that. And any depiction or representation that we create of reality, whether it is on a piece of paper or it's a theory that we've made about something, that will always be less than what the reality that it depicts is. Nature is always richer, always more detailed, more multifaceted and more wondrous than any mental or paper map uh, representation of the thing or territory. Because in the world, a tree presents itself, or as Heidegger might say, it's, it presences. It's not just be standing there, it's kind of actively being in the world. And, and the tree, you know, in a way, the tree just, just is. It's just standing there and it just is a tree. But it is a tree in a multitudinous, complex way. It looks different depending on your location or your point of view. Wherever you stand, the tree will look different. And it is also, it's many things at the same time. It's simultaneously a perfect place to build a nest, to lay your eggs. And it's also some, a way to keep your house warm once it's been chopped into firewood and burnt during the winter. And the story is that it isn't actually one or the other. It is both at the same time. It's potentially firewood and potentially a place to place your eggs, you know. It's potentially anything and everything. It's more than whatever you think it is. So whatever you, whether you think it's a nesting place for, for birds or firewood, the, real, the realization of either one of those will then be a limited aspect of what the tree is. It becomes that thing, if I decide to chop it down, it turns into firewood and it stops having the potential to be in many other things. But, but the thing is, when you, when you see a tree, when you touch it, when you smell it, and perhaps even taste it, we we create a mental picture of it. We gather all the sensory input together and we connect it uh, together with our concept of a tree. And this process creates a kind of mental representation of the tree's original presentation or presencing. It's like I walk... In a certain sense, you could say that we create a mental map of the real world tree. We make a map of a particular aspect of the territory, in this case, the tree. And the nature of all maps, all mental models and concepts, they are all different from and less than the territory that they represent. But so often we forget this. This, I think, lies at the heart of the treachery of images. We walk past the tree, we make a mental representation of the tree, and we believe we have the measure of it. We mistake the map for the territory, making reality lesser in the process. Now, 
a little while ago I wondered whether the pipe smoker would have a harder time than a child seeing a pipe's potential beyond facilitating the inhalation of smoke. And I am inclined to think so. Firstly, because the pipe smoker uses the pipe very frequently in a very certain specific way, lighting it up and that, and it's he sees it in this way, out of a very powerful habit. You know, there might be a, a, an aspect of addiction even involved here, so he sees it as a delivery tool for nicotine. But secondly, it's because children have a formidable capacity for seeing any object as something other than or more than it's conventionally used for or seen as. And we often call this capacity play which is the theme of this whole upcoming season. But before getting deeply into that, I just want to finish the thoughts about the pipe smoke um, and about the pipe smoker who sees the pipe as a um, pipe and who calls a spade a spade since that's what it is. He sees the pipe, this is my pipe, it's a pipe for smoking tobacco or whatever you might put in your pipe. But my point is that what we believe something to be shapes what it is that we see. If we believe that the pipe is just for smoking tobacco, then that is what it is to us, at least. And if we believe the map is the same as the territory, then it is to us. So this is a, is a point that isn't really sort of a... I don't think it's argued much between philosophers or people who bother to think about it, but it's that whatever it is that we pay attention to, the way that we pay attention to it shapes what that thing is for us. Like if we pay close attention to anything, if you take two minutes out of your life to really study something, whether it is an apple that's in front of you or to really study the pencil that you am using to write and, and to really think of what that thing is, taking it in and thinking it through. How was it made? Where did the graphite come from? Where did the, what, what is that thing in the middle anyway that makes the traces on the paper? When you really look at a pencil and you really look at an apple, if you really take time to think about it, you don't actually ever go back and look at it in the same way again because you, but that, that apple or that pencil is now more than what it was. So in a, in something that I have touched on before on this show, it's that there is a moral component then to how we pay attention to things. And it's so easy to think that a thing is, you know, less than. We make an image, we think we have the measure of it, and then we, we move on. But by paying close attention to something, we are actually shaping what it is. And that goes for whether it is people that you meet, or it is how you view the craft of what you do, in our case, showmanship and performing or whatever. Uh, so we'll just flag this, that, that there is a moral component to how we view something. And we are now going to, over this season, develop the idea of what showmanship is or what it can be, and that there is this moral component to that, uh, and that how you choose to view it actually help shape what it is so i don't know to, to make a gross uh, simplification i'm going to do that to make a point sort of a bit quickly but when the when the general population 
thinks about circus or magic or any other form of entertainment or indeed any artistic endeavor, they think of it as something largely supplementary. This is simplification. But people go, art, oh well, I haven't got the money to buy art, so I'll just print something out from the internet. I don't, whatever. It's like, oh, we, we, it's something that we do in our spare time. Uh, when we are done with our serious business, maybe we take the kids, you know, to see a show on a Sunday afternoon, much like we watch a TV show after we've gotten home from work and eaten our dinner. It's something that we do if we have the time. It's fun, but not important like work or keeping safe and or taking out the trash. People easily dismiss entertainment and its more encompassing expression as art. They, all of that, they just dismiss it as less important. Less important than, it's less than. It's something that we can do, uh, but that we don't have to do. So the, if we say that the general person, they see entertainment, and I think they have the measure of it. They've made a mental representation of what entertainment is. They've made a map, a simplification of a territory. In this case, the territory is entertainment or art. And when they then equate it uh, with the territory, they see it as less than. And what we understand something to be is never all that a thing or a process is. Because a process or a thing is always more. The way we understand something informs what that thing is for us. Which means if we expand our ideas of what something is, expand our understanding, deepen our context for it, that thing will be more and be richer for us. And this is the case for ourselves, firstly, but potentially also for others. If I see a depth in something, chances are I can convey this depth to others. And as it so happens, conveyance or expression or expressing and communicating is a key feature in showmanship. As the thing about us show folk, us showmen, us performing artists, it is that we present material for audiences. We stand before a group of people and we have something to show. We create imagery that can be presented in shows which in turn affects our audiences. So our understanding of what we do, how serious we take it, how rich we find it will in subtle or not so subtle ways be conveyed to our audiences. The way we think about performance will subtly or not so subtly be conveyed to our audiences. This is since in a certain sense, it is us performers working around the world today, which makes up the general public's idea of what entertainment and art is. Then our opinions, for as much as it comes out in our performance, is actually shaping the understanding of our audiences. You know, it's shaping our understanding of our audiences as to what a particular kind of performance style or genre is. Of course, there's also the deep history of entertainment which shapes their view, but we performers are entertaining people today, shaping, if nothing else, their immediate impression of what art and entertainment is and can be. Our opinions and understandings of what we do really matters. It matters and influences the art and shows we make 
which in turn changes what our audience experience of us as performers and also then our art. But it also matters to us as human beings because the importance and depth we see in what we do influences how we see ourselves as human beings and thus it also influences how we behave in the world. So this is the kind of coming back to the the moral aspect of how we choose to pay attention. Because if we think entertainment is a good way to make some easy money or a good way to get laid or a bit of fun whilst we work out what we're really going to do with our lives, then those opinions will, at least to some extent, saturate our work. You will create great displays of color and movement attracting sexual attention to yourself like a peacock's tail or the elaborate dance displays of birds of paradise if that is your if that's your gig if you see juggling as a mode of expression as rich in potential as painting sculpting and music then this will become visible in your work when you create you as a human being will be visible in the work that you create visible to the audience. You might think that you're showing them juggling. You might think that you're showing them a magic bag that's bigger on the inside than on the outside. But all the while, they see you as an authentic human being standing in front of them, hopefully. And what you think about what you do, it will bleed through and be visible to a greater or lesser degree for your audience. And if this is the case, and I believe it is, then... How we understand what we do is of the utmost importance for ourselves, for our art of entertainment, and for our audiences. This season aims to further and deepen your understanding of showmanship. The way I will do that is to make a powerful extended metaphor exploring showmanship alongside play. Which brings us back to the child who so easily and playfully could come up with a thousand uses for the pipe which the ardent pipe smoker couldn't see. And even if the ardent pipe smoker did see them, then he would know in his heart that all these new random uses imagined by the child were all just make-believe, a bit of silly childish nonsense, since he knows in his heart what the pipe really is. He knows that it isn't for using as a periscope for a bunch of toy mice uh, sailing the seas in a saucer-sized cup. The smoker has trouble seeing past his map of the pipe to the territory of the real pipe. The claim I am making is that it is much easier for a child to actually see the territory and to stay with it and its myriad of potential without collapsing it into one or another actuality. They can stay with the territory rather than reduce it to a map. Effortlessly and with great immediacy, they will draw new maps as their game necessitates it. In one moment, the pipe will be a periscope on the boat, and the next thing, it will be a little razor boat, like super fast little boat for the smallest mouse to catch up with the others. And and with no... um, without collapsing the thing and saying, no, it's 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 a tobacco smoking pipe and that's all that it is. So this ability that that children have to be in the territory and to interact with it in any which way that makes and takes their fancy 
is a feature particularly prevalent in children. And we call this mode of engaging with the world play. And it is the natural domain of children. And we were all children at one point. And it is the child that we were, which is um, the father of the man, as Wordsworth put it. Or, as I would put it, going beyond the individual to the general. The child, this is like making a bigger scope than just the child being the father of the man, wasn't the child that I was, uh, is the origin of who I am today. I would say that the child is the origin of mankind or humanity, and that play is the axis upon which it all revolves. That the child is the origin of mankind. What we are as children has uh, shaped the human that we are, the species that we are. That's what I'm going to talk about. So this season will be about play. Because I have come to believe that looking at showmanship and performance as play will greatly expand and deepen our understanding of the nature of performance and entertainment, and that this again will serve us greatly as performers. As we expand our understanding of play, we will simultaneously grow and deepen our understanding of performance, since, as I see it, these are two sides of the same coin. And if you, as I do, make a life and a living from performing, or you identify as a showman or a performer of any kind in at least part of your life, you will find yourself on a more secure philosophical foundation after taking in some of these ideas. You'll be better equipped to face those gigs we find ourselves doing where the situation is less than ideal, to better face failure or face our father-in-law or whomever else that might ask us, uh, when will you get a real job? At the dark night of the soul, when we awake and find ourselves lost, having plumbed the depth of our crafts in the ways that we will do now, will increase the chances that our explorations will afford us illuminations that can guide our way out of the dark and once again find our way when we're lost. This was a bit of a a theme uh, in the episodes during the pandemic when we were looking at trying to understand what showmanship and who the showman was. But anyway, it is my firm belief that hearing me talk about the craft of performing in the way that you do now will not just change how you think about performing, but also change you into a richer and more complex performer. I believe that the ideas and the way of looking at showmanship and at play and the complex web of relation between the two will sink into you as by osmosis. And without changing your scripts or your tricks and routines or your show, I believe that it will shine through in your work as you deepen your relationship to what you do and the role playing and performing has played in the history of our species it will make you prouder in your pursuit of your craft. You'll walk a little straighter, stand a little taller, and be more secure in your worth and value, and your audiences will see it, feel it, and love it. The results of the coming explorations 
seems to me not only to illuminate who and what a shaman is, but to uncover a certain way of being, of being human in the world. My findings and explorations are, of course, tainted by my own propensities and my biases. But as I uncover what I believe to be the playful origins of showmanship in our ancient human history, where our very species of hominid emerges, I find the showman's way to embody and to carry on from the past until today, I find the very qualities that actually made us human. The fire kindled in the caves where art covered the walls, where bone flutes were played and dances were danced as we, homo sapiens, took further steps along the evolution of consciousness and became more than what we had been and possibly something new under the sun. An inner change, not found in bones and cranial, the cranial volume, but a change that's found in art and artefacts and in the connections between what's found, the play and connections between things, like how a cave bear skull is placed in a cave space, how the bones of people buried lies in relation to others and the remnants of flowers and beads and shells, they all the relationship between all these things, they tell tales of an interior spark of change, an interior expansion further into freedom, an increased awareness of the importance on relations, on the betweenness of reality, the constant reciprocal relationship between our maps and the territories, between imagination and reality. And this I believe, is the domain of the showman, the fully grown child who plays for a living. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about origins and the difficulty in finding something's or the origin of anything and talk about evolution because when we wonder about where to start something, it might seem obvious to just start at the beginning. But where is the beginning? And if we do find the beginning, the actual very beginning, will we even recognize what it was that we're looking for as the same thing as what it has become today? Because everything changes along the way. As a rule, we can say that the longer the way, the greater the change. From the outline of a hand on a cave wall via Michelangelo's marble statue of David and Picasso's Guernica and Duchamp's fountain, how do we recognize all of this as art? From single-celled organism to human being, how do we trace ancestry? How do we know that the, the single cell changed? What is the evolution? What is the thing in it that we recognize so that we know that this is the next step along that? So knowing where something comes from can be very informative, but of course no thing or phenomena or process is fully determined by its origins. Along the way things change and sometimes completely transform. But by looking at the origins of something in an open-minded way, keeping it in our mind, not as a finished thing, 
but as a kind of living concept, then the origin of something can become a powerful metaphor to illuminate the present state of a phenomenon, often in very interesting and useful ways. And I, I want to explore what we can learn by comparing the beginning and the now of performance and showmanship. Uh, but before we can compare the beginning of showmanship with what it is now and see what, if anything, uh, we can learn from these origins, what they can teach us about the showmanship of today, then we need to uncover what the origins might be. And there are many ways to view the origins of showmanship since, as we have just seen, the real world will always present itself as more than we can simply express it. We can never talk about everything all at once. We must choose between what to include and what to leave out. And these choices form a certain story. And to function in the world, we must constrain the multitude of possibilities into individual choices. Each action we take forge us into who we are. Each action we take forge us into who we are. We are constantly becoming as we participate in reality. To be human is to have an unprecedented ability of freedom. We can be having a terrible time and economically or whatever, but as a human being, contra an animal, we have an, an enormous ability to choose what we do. We make ourselves to a greater degree than any other species in the animal kingdom. We participate in our own creation and we participate in the creation of our own reality. That connects back to this idea of how we pay attention to things, change, changes it. We participate in shaping how we view ourselves and how we see humanity. How we choose to interact is open for interpretation, personal whims and inclinations. And my sum of such inclinations and whims has shaped a way behind me. And that is the way that I attempt to describe on this podcast. So the, the following that I'm going to lay out over these next 20 plus episodes is the story that I have been telling me, telling myself about uh, showmanship, which seems in so many ways blatantly obvious to me because of what I have found relevant or not. What I'm going to tell you is my story of the origins of showmanship. But at the end of the day, that's all we have. Stories. Scientists write stories, stringing together their wondrous and hard-won facts. Novelists write stories and poets too. We tell ourselves the stories of our lives. Through stories we grasp who we are and our place within the grand circus of life. And as a showman, I feel it is my place and purpose to share my stories. And since you fellow traveller of the way, since you too care about performance and the craft of being an entertaining artist, I want to share with you my story on the playful origins of showmanship. But as I indicated above, a little earlier here, that it's, uh, you know, it, it can be difficult. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the sort of transient nature of things, because, as I said, things are always changing we change as we grow, relationships change, continents and mountains change. So what or who, anyone or anything 
is at any given point is just a point on the way. So who you are today is just a point on the way. And perhaps you could say that at any given moment we are, but along the way we are always in a state of becoming. And it's always artificial to introduce a sharp distinction, like how the history of evolution is told to us uh, through the punctuated snapshots, if you can call it that, of fossils. When we find fossils, it's very easy to think of them as separate species. Each fossil shows us one animal or plant or whatever, which is clearly different from another further up or down in the rock layers. Yet, it's also unique, and its separate appearance only makes sense when we freeze it in time. Or in the case of the fossil, it's quite literally like set in stone. It's not frozen, it's actually like set in stone. It's a geological snapshot. Because one day, a trilobite could be cruising around the bottom of the sea, and next thing you know, there's an underwater landslide, and 270 million years later, some paleontology student digs you out of the ground in some desert in Utah, and frozen in permanent suspended animation. <laughs> you know, you're just minding your own business, and the next thing you know, you're a fossil. There, they you the students who might be digging in the ground and they take you out and look at you and then, as we've said before, they think they have the measure of you. They think they have the measure of this uh, trilobite and they might say, this is a Modokia typicalis, which is the name of a type of um, a type of trilobite that you can find in, um, in Utah, the paleontology. But the funny thing is that... Uh, that is who the trilobite is at that time. But if you'd had that same line of trilobites and you dug it up 10 years uh, later, then that uh, bug, or whatever you want to call the little crustacean bug, has actually sort of turned into another species because a lot of stuff changed in 10 million years. I mean, the last common ancestor that we share with the chimpanzees, that, that lived 6 million years ago. So 6 million years ago, there was an animal that was the mum of two kids, one that begat children, who begat children, who then begat children, who begat you. And then that mum's other kid begat a child, who begat the child, who begat Bubbles, Michael Jackson's pet chimpanzee. So, you know, a lot can change in six million years. And the story I find useful to picture this uh, on the transient nature of things and naming it and, and that it's just a, a, a stage along the way and not the finished thing. I use this in my head also because it blew my mind when I first started learning about it. And um, it's the story of the evolution of the whale. Because as mammals, we share with the whales a common ancestor in the half-fish, uh, half-four-legged creature, most likely called well, it is, it is called Tiktaalik, which is an incredible fossil that Neil Shubin found a while ago, which is just, it literally is that. It's got gills and it's got legs and it's walking and it's just a, the, it's the really so-called missing link. Uh, when the Tiktaalik sometime, and I think in the Devonian age, it came out of the water 
to walk on land. And so all mammals came out of the land. You know, a long time ago, our ancestors were fishes. But some fishes eventually crawled out of the water, and we are, that's who we're related to. But the weird thing about the whales is that the whales have gone back into the water. The whales like, I mean, this land thing is all right, but I really miss how things were. I just want things to go back to how it was. So unlike most mammals, the whale evolved back into an aquatic existence. The whales live in the oceans, but they still breathe the air like we do. So for as much as they wanted things to be the way they were, they weren't. Because things never stay the same. Everything changes. So now, the whale can only live in the sea, but like the rest of us mammals, they can drown. And if a whale swims into a long fjord which then freezes over or they get caught in a fishing net, they can drown. So nothing stays the same. But the animal, which is the ancestor of all whales, they now believe, is an animal called Pachycetus, which lived about 50 million years ago. And this animal looks remarkably like a dog. It's a little bit bigger, and it's got a longish kind of skull and large teeth, which indicates that it was a meat eater. And I remember when I first saw this, which I believe was on a PBS uh, uh, documentary uh, that you can still find on YouTube. I, maybe I should see if I can post a link to that. But anyway, it was just quite shocking to me. And I don't know what it what I thought that a whale ancestor would have looked like. But at least maybe from some naive point of view, you would seem right that it was something more fish-like, not something that looked like a dog. And how do we know, because so, it is so different, how do we actually know that this dog-like creature, Pachycetus, is what over the next 20-odd uh, million years turn into what we now call whales or dolphins and, and uh, all the, those animals. And oddly enough, uh, just from my limited study of these things, it turns out that it is because of some very particular bony features inside the inner ear, which strongly resemble um, those of living whales, and which also is unlike any other mammalian ears. So I, I mention this not because I know so much about ears or whatever, but it's just this, that it's just a kind of a random feature. It seems to me, I mean, to the people who are studying these things, it's not random at all. So I mention this because as something evolves and transform, we must find a key feature which will help us recognize the lineage through the constant uh, flux of change. Because when studying the evolution of a species, it's often through seemingly minor features that we find critical evidence to link animals that are highly specialized to their lifestyle, like the whales, and their more general-looking animal ancestors, like a dog-like four-legged mammal running around. So, you know, or like how ocean-dwelling whales relate to four-legged predators roaming the shores 50 million years ago, that we have to find something that we can trace the ancestry with and grasp how one thing changed from one to the other. We must find certain features that are characteristics and then trace it back or, you know, trace it forwards or back and forth, whatever. Because 50 million years ago, 
A Pachycetus fossil snapshot shows us that this animal had four legs. But then when we revisit that animal's lineage two million years later, it's now become a vaguely crocodile-shaped mammal. How do we know? Well, we've got the ear thing to see, oh, this is how it's changed. And that animal is called Ambulocetus. Um, ambulo, probably, um, anyway. I was going to make a joke here, but probably it looks like it's something wrong with its legs now, so uh, time to get an ambulance. But it just means that it's more it's a mobile cetus. So 10 to 12 million years later, uh, you look at the same animal, as it's changed and it has now lost its hind legs completely and its front legs are now the kind of flippers that we know from whales and dolphins and it's also got a fish looking tail only that the tail of the, the different um, whale looking animals or the rail relations they are horizontal you know the whale whales sort of tail is horizontal rather than vertical like it is on fishes that has to do with the way that the spine has changed. And then you look, in, uh, look at another fossil a few million years later and we find the first humpback whale. And all along the way, though, from Pachycetus to whale, each of these animals was fully and completely itself. It was not on the way to becoming another animal. It simply was itself. The differentiation into species is something that we introduce by naming fossils. And the naming of species is putting names on living organisms based on how much they differ from one another, <clears throat> from one fossil, from one, some, another one, a few million years later. So how much a fossil vary is often then dependent on how long ago it is since the two organisms shared a common ancestor like the animal mother that gave birth to the ancestor of humans and chimpanzees you know we're over the last six million years we've gone one way and chimpanzees have gone another so on which day was it that one animal became another and there was of course no such day it's something that we can only distinguish with the benefit of hindsight. When we introduce the vast passing of deep time, millions of years, unimaginably many rotations of the earth around the sun, biology and physiology changes. And in a way, we see this, you know, in a sort of microcosmos, we see this in our own comparably short lives, because as we look back at ourselves as curious and playful seven-year-olds, and then years later as serious and driven adults, we could just as well assign ourselves as different species. Infant, child, youth, adult, aging. Each could be a separate species when frozen in time, but only so because of the artificial introduction of a distinction. And each time we make this distinction, we are, you know, as we've talked about before, back at Magritte's pipe and Kozybski's uh, map versus territory. That's what's happening when we're naming something. We go, this is it, but it is not the pipe. And when we name something, we capture a snapshot of an idea of it, and away too often, this then, we begin to mistake this name and the idea for the thing itself. We begin to treat the named idea of something as if it was the real thing in the world. By naming and by distinguishing, we appear to have something particular and distinct, whilst along the way, like with a line of creatures along the whale's evolution back into the sea, there were individuals making choices without the full overview and without striving to become another species. 
What I'm trying to say here in a very roundabout way is that when it comes to complex relational processes like performance, love and play, it's difficult to make out a true historical relationship. When we seek the origins of showmanship, when we look for a beginning from which we can start, how do I start this whole thing? How do we recognize then which features are the important one or important ones? Which feature or which features are the important ones to follow? Like, how can we see how one of the key features forming the red thread tying together Pachycetus to Ambulocetus to the whale? So we know that that was this structure of the inner air. So to be able to tell what showmanship was like in the beginning or how to find its origins, we must try to determine the features in current showmanship which we seek to find the origins of. Because it's easy to get lost and off track if we choose the features without proper care. If we had decided, for instance, that uh, ventriloquism with the sort of puppet-human relation, that this is the particular feature that reliably would take us to the origin of showmanship, then we no doubt would have ended up with some interesting story, possibly landing us somewhere in the evolutionary way of the showman when he manifested as a kind of shaman, possibly animating a dog skull, a dog or a dog, as some might call it, a dog or a dog, um, depending on which accent you put on. You know, like he's animating a dog uh, skull in a shaking tent somewhere in the Siberian tundra. And as interesting as that story might be, what I am seeking or we're seeking here on the way of the showman podcast is something more fundamental than the human puppet relationship of, uh, of ventriloquism. And that means that we're, we're seeking a trait that must be more general. And what is the most general feature combining all aspects or uniting all aspects of showmanship. To find this, we need to take a look at showmanship with the aim of finding a trait, like the Pachycetus' inner ear, that we can use to trace the lineage of showmanship from the depths of prehistory to now. And to do that, we need to take another look at what I believe showmanship to be, which is what we will do in the next exciting installment of The Way of the Showman. And there we go, at the end of an introductory episode. Um, we're not going to go quite that deeply into uh, evolutionary things there, but um, I tried to, with most of the stuff that I do when I think about uh, performing and showmanship or whatever, I like to draw from aspects outside of performance. Because the reason why I'm doing a lot of this isn't, just to understand the history of performing or whatever. It's to put what I do into a greater historical uh, context. And uh, that's what this uh, upcoming season is going to be about. We're going to connect ourselves deeply into the world in many different ways as we playfully navigate the history of, uh, uh, of humans and culture and all these uh, good things. So... Uh, uh, until next time, it would be awesome if you sign up with the Way of the Showman on Instagram. I have the plan here of uh, maybe by next episode I'll be announcing it, but I will have a campaign going out there and it will be 
uh, gifts and stuff involved in that. So, um, you know, find us on The Way of the Showman at uh, Instagram. And uh, I uh, hope to see you there. And until next time, take care of yourself and those you love. And I hope to see you along the way. (laughs) 